Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro, but as always, the show is never about me. It is who I have brought to you today, and I have brought two people here today from halfway around the world. We have two amazing Filipino game designers, artists, graphic designers, works in lots of different areas. We even talk about some magic realism, potentially. I would like to welcome to the show Cinta Posadas, and Pamela Punzalan. Woohoo! Yay! Woo-hoo. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> that's yeah. us! That's I'm, I'm, that's, we did it! Uh, all right, interview over. No. So I am going to kick the can to sin first, but would you both please introduce yourselves because you'll do a much better job at it than I will. Hey, my name is Sin. I am a queer, non-binary designer from Metro Manila, and I, I co-designed the game that we're going to be talking about today, Navathan Send. And before Navathan Send, I suppose a lot of people would know me from my plant game series. I also designed a number of other games that like kind of focus on love, intimacy, defiance, that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of that also reflects upon Navatham Send. Another thing that I do for the tabletop sphere is I do actually a lot of layout. I did some layout for Enoch's Wig, for Flirt Squad, for Gun and Slinger. So those are the two primary fields of design that I do in tabletop RPGs. 
that's me. So I'm Pam, and I think a lot of people know me as the Dovetailer on Twitter, everywhere, really. <laughs> uh, half the time I'm in Final Fantasy XIV these days because I like that world. But whenever I'm doing tabletop, <laughs> whenever I'm doing tabletop, I do design of my own. I'm also a perpetual freelance person for hire. I'm familiar with Forged in the Dark, Powered by the Apocalypse, a bit of OSR, and I recently did my first foray into D&D under Journeys to the Radiant Citadel. I have also written for Hunter the Reckoning, and I have done work for Aspire, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, The Islands of Sinauna, and a whole bunch of other games. Beyond design, I am an editor, a sensitivity reader, and a cultural consultant. I also like doing community work with the likes of Asians Represent and pushing the hashtag RPGC, which is role-playing game Southeast Asia. Beautiful. What uh, What do you play in Final Fantasy XIV, Pam? I main Dark Knight and Dragoon. I am oh, yeah. a passable astrologian and an abhorrent red mage, but I have touched every job. So <laughs> you are <Yeah>. not <laughs> an abhorrent red mage. I, I'm pretty. Excuse me. <laughs> Do you also play sin? Yeah. Yeah. I have one class. <laughs> Just a dancer. That's it. <laughs> Beautiful. Paladin main myself, and then nice. also white mage. Which data center are you in? I have one is in Aether, and the other is in Primal. Oh, oh damn it! Dang crystal. it! Yeah, we're in Crystal. Well, I have data a, I have center a travel is crystal, coming soon. Not, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, play with all the all the global friends. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're in Crystal uh, Balmung, by the way. Heard, 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 heard. Very cool. Very cool. Well, maybe we'll get, maybe we'll talk about that later. But the big, the big topic here, or we have a couple big topics here. But you know, the first and foremost that I want people to get interested in, if if nothing else, is Navathan's end. So, either one of you raise your hands. I can't see you, but would someone just care to give a brief description about what Navathan's end is? So Navathan's end is a tabletop role-playing game where you play as agents trying to stop an apocalypse that nearly destroyed the world 800 years ago. It is a game that runs off of a kit bash system between Forge in the Dark, Powered by the Apocalypse, and some elements of OSR. That's the elevator pitch. There you go. Cool. <laughs> That's very good. No, I've I've been able to to read the game. If you haven't, is, is there is there like a, a quick start or something like that that people can pick up currently, or is that going to wait till more of a some? No, it, it came out right. Yeah, it's out. It's out. I don't know what. Diwatamnl.itch.io. <laughs> Sorry, and, every time um, I see the word Kickstarter in my notes, I'm like, it hasn't funded yet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we funded in. 2020. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We founded in 2020 and we released recently. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, And we'll also be getting the topics of like digital and print stuff too, but people can pick up copies of of Navatham's End right now, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. So if you're you're listening to this, you know, we're not going to touch on every little detail in here. Go get the game. That's what that's for. Just go read the book. Links to that will be down below in the show notes. But 
I've had the opportunity to check out this game. It's been very, it's helped me with a lot of pieces of my design. And I think we have similar thoughts in some areas and you've given me new thoughts in other ones. But the first thing I sort of want to want to ask, and either one of you can answer, you're, you're sitting next to each other, which yeah. is unlike some of the other co-ops, uh, cooperative <laughs> meetings that I have where they're at two different computers, but... Amongst yourselves, I would like one person to tell me what sort of narrative experience or like story experience you were trying to capture with writing Navithim's End. And then I would like another person to sort of talk about what what you wanted the game to feel like mechanically in terms of that. Oh, Pam's really good at talking about narrative experiences. <laughs> <Am> I- <laughs> <laughs> that you you would you could say that she has real professional level <laughs> advice when it comes to that kind of stuff. So um, go ahead. I I feel like what we were trying to accomplish with this game was showing the weight of legacy in Ooh, a gameable oh, yeah. fashion, right? Because like a lot of designers talk about this thing called gameable lore, but if you actually go out and Google it or search it on Twitter or whatever, you're not really going to see any consolidated resources on it. So how Sin and I like to define gameable lore is lore that is useful in a mechanical, systematic way for their players, which means that dates and timelines and stuff are nice, but if you can't make a, a character, a location, or a plot hook out of it, then ultimately it is useless. So, mm. like, narratively, we wanted to have people create characters in a present that is deeply informed by a fragmented past. So that's kind of what we wanted from everything from our moves down to our... I guess, the premise that we gave. And Mm -hmm. we wanted everything to be very open to interpretation. Like, we, as co-designers, decided that while we have a very set vision for us, what we're most interested in is kind of giving people the tools and going, like, go wild. Like, that's why a lot of the descriptions are very fluid. And that's also why, system-wise, Sin really tried to make a game that you could just take any rule that didn't work and toss it out or adjust whatever you want or um, you can arbitrate together as a playgroup rather than let like one person have the final say. So I guess that like kind of wraps up narratively what we wanted to do. Talk about legacy, talk about accountability, consequences, define hope for yourself and also define the concept of hubris because we were told in feedback that people found it interesting that we use the word hubris because that's usually that usually bears the connotation of a bad thing. But for mm-hmm. us, it's hubris, that arrogance, and that sheer vain glory that lets people survive. And that echoes mm-hmm. throughout the entire game. Whoa. You've <laughs> immediately inspired me again. No, I told just as a quick response to that before we get over to <laughs> sin and, and mechanical stuff, get ready. I'm giving you a chance to formulate your answer. But you've inspired me because I think I think in a lot of the same terms of making like a gameable narrative or setting in in terms of like legacy mechanics right like Mm -hmm. i lately i've been really fascinated by legacy style games like risk legacy betrayal on the hill legacy all Mm, those sort of like Mm -hmm. specific board game type and how events in history which are the game sessions you play 
create a narrative of the next session and every session that came before it, so long as you're playing in the same sort of play group or whatever. And I think that is like, I've never been happy with the meandering campaign of like D and D or Epic fantasy style stuff, because it all feels very like meandering. You're kind of just walking about doing either really gonzo adventures or you're doing like a super inflated epic narrative. And sometimes <laughs> that's, that sort of like fizzles out and you don't see the repercussions of that. I think a lot of, a lot of the reasons why people like critical role in the recent set of years is because they're now seeing the impacts of their first campaign on all their other Mm -hmm. campaigns. And they're like really invested in that. Right. Yeah. So how can we add that to our sort of, and Navithim's end is a big, is a big book, 200 ish pages, 230 ish pages. Yeah. First of all, huge, huge claps, high fives to the both of you. I also want to make the big, the big book game. So very cool. And, but that's all to say, to come back full circle, I think legacy, specific legacy, I want to say the word mechanics, but I don't think that's exactly what I mean by that. But (laughs) legacy mechanics, for lack of a more refined term, um, Mm -hmm. is a very cool consideration, especially as an innovation to the sort of epic fantasy genre or like discover a new world genre of setting and RPG Right. I think I think that's all very, very cool. And you've immediately inspired me for my own game. So uh, thank you. It's interesting that you actually mentioned legacy mechanics because Pendragon, the the RPG, was actually one of my first games that I kind of stared at really long (laughs) and tried to see what I could impart. Yeah. 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 No, no kidding. The move Harness Hubris is a... It, it went through several stages. It started from kind of a... In Pendragon, they have something like a, a passion role or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, mm-hmm. if something really affects you, you can make a role or something, or it affects your role. That was something that I really liked. And I took it and I tried to kind of shape it for Navithan. And that's the whole concept of like hubris here in Navithan, where you are spurned on by your determination to create a future, even if you don't get to see it. That's, mm-hmm. that's the whole kind of thing that I took from Pendragon. And with like the whole legacy thing, and the campaigns extending. That's actually another thing that we really wanted for Navithim. I am I am personally very used to long campaigns. I think we both Whenever are. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we both, both are. Both, yeah. Whenever I play in a campaign that's like it only lasts a couple of months, I get really sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I get super attached to my characters. Uh-huh. And I get super attached to NPCs, and when when a game inevitably comes to an end, because all games do, uh-huh. I I get really sad and lonely. I get like the equivalent of a con drop, so I just uh-huh. never wanted to end. So <laughs> when when we designed Navathan's end, 
we really wanted to have a system that could support long-term play mm. and could support, I guess, like legacy play and that you play like your characters maybe go on for maybe 10 years of their life and then you pick up the campaign again. You play a bunch of characters who were inspired by your characters of old because Navithim itself from its very beginning has actually seen three campaigns mm-hmm. and a lot of the history, the lore history in the book itself were basically based off and inspired by what happened during those campaigns. Like the Mockingbird era was actually the campaign right before the campaign I'm running right now. And the Times of Chaos was also a little bit inspired by the campaign that I ran beforehand. So, yeah. And because I do have a really high exposure to Forge in the Dark and and Powered by the Apocalypse games, I just took like the parts, or we took the parts that like really kind of resonated with me and resonated with the concept of what we wanted Navithem to be. Especially for Forge in the Dark, like Pan was incredible with that because she has a lot of like grasp of those sorts of mechanics. So we kind of put our brains together <laughs> to kind of create this sort of game that hopefully doesn't do the thing that you just talked about, like the whole meandering thing. Yeah. The other interesting thing though about it, like if we talk purely system, is the majority of Forge in the Dark games empowered by the Apocalypse games do not support long play. Mm. They they are really built to be done in seasons. Like maybe uh, five call, sessions. Five sessions or like maybe 15 with like three different seasons. So it's almost like TV-like in its format or yeah. they're meant to be episodic, kind of like how a lot of Blades in the Dark runs <clears throat> where it's supposed to be a drop-in, drop-out, low-commitment thing. But that, I guess, was a design challenge for us, as Sin put it, being used to long campaigns. We wanted to see what we could define as longevity while also providing people the room to just say, okay, we can cut it off here and we're all happy and just do something else or or take whatever we wanted from the last campaign and put it back in. We didn't really, uh, there wasn't a lot of time, I think, to really explore that for us, but hopefully like energy and emotion allowing, we might be able to make more supplements in that direction. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's so many things I want to (laughs) make. I just don't have the money. Same. (laughs) I don't have funding. I feel it. it. I'm trying. I'm over here trying to make a goddamn deck builder. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how do Mm -hmm. I get all these? How do I get all these little cards? Oh, but a thing that I also want to explore very soon is to actually release. What do you call them again? Which one? The those licenses so that people can do whatever they want. Oh, like an open oh, source. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been trying to study an SRD. There you go. Yeah, I've yeah. been trying to study how to make a proper SRD that will allow people to make things for Navithum without them having to worry about copyright because mm-hmm. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sue people for making stuff for for Navithum. Like heck, mm-hmm. I'd be I'd be so honored and I want them to be able to if they want to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always think about 
for me, whenever I've GM'd some longer campaigns, I've always thought about like, what are the repercussions of people's actions, not only in the short term, but in the long term as well. Right. <clears throat> and just as like a, as a, an example of how you've inspired me here today and kind of like allowing that to apply maybe to someone else who's listening in, I'm working on like a science fantasy setting in the world are these two progenitor mech, very Xenoblade inspired. Mm, okay. Uh, and, you know, one mech is laying in the sea, half destroyed by the other mech who's plunged a giant blade into mm-hmm. it, like a knight, over, like kneeling or something like that. Ooh, that's cool. And they're both Sounds connected. Metal. It's super sick. At least I think so. <laughs> but it's my thing, so. But they're connected by the swords. The sword's like an elevator. But the legacy part that you inspired me by is, I think would be really fascinating is part of the narrative is about discovery and, and getting inside of the mechs. Mm. Um, you know, they have like access panels and stuff. And so the, the cultures that sort of gestate on top of the mech over the course of, you know, miraculous energy and blah, blah, blah. And we don't need to explain it's suspension of disbelief, but when you go inside and like, you do like a dungeon quote unquote, part of the mech uh. will move and you could like kill thousands of people or like you could unlock new areas on the mech. So like, it boots up for a second and arm moves and now you have like a new location to explore like the underside mm, of an arm right. or something like that. Sounds rad. Yeah. I want that. <laughs> yeah. You made it happen. So you can have it. <laughs> well, I hope I get to read it soon. Yeah. Soon? Probably not. But you're welcome to talk about it on the discord for sure. But yeah. So let's let's talk about why uh, I know that you have certain expertises in Forge in the Dark and PBTA games and, as you mentioned, slightly OSR. But what exactly did you like from those systems and what were you trying to marry together with Navithems? And how how do you how do you think that helps with the sort of how do I want to say this? The setting experience or narrative experience you're trying to culminate in this game. Mm. Do you want me to start? Or... Okay. Well, the first one outright is the playbook system from PBTA, mm-hmm. which is, it. I guess, is the easiest way for, for us to create the equivalent of, like, classes, mm-hmm. right? Which gives people, like, a comfort zone. Um, and it also helped us kind of like tie it in through the narrative of these agent designations are actually fields of specialization mm-hmm. that are inspired by the core seven, like the heroes of old. So like lore wise, that's how it ties in. But mechanically we wanted kind of a way to present like playbooks in a familiar kind of comfortable way mm-hmm. and uh, to be able to also like put forward some familiar tropes in play. Mm-hmm. So like just to be more concrete about it. So like you have your command, which is one of our agent designations. And like the command is kind of like your, I mean, it's in the name, right? He's kind of like the, uh, the you know what you're getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's kind of like the 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 leader, or he he she they 
they kind of they call the shots and you can see it in their in their skills the the roster of skills and like it just kind of translates and then you have the weapon who is i suppose their trope is more like they know how to do fighting really well like they can have really good command when it comes to fighting so like the command could be good at fighting but they could also not but the the weapon for sure would be good at fighting but the the weapon could also be good at doing the command's job especially mm-hmm. if the the weapon gets like skills from the command playbook and that's like another thing we wanted to do we while we wanted to create a comfortable place for people to play the type of tropes and stereotypes that they wanted we also wanted to give people a lot of customization options mm-hmm. by allowing multi classes introducing a magic class system and allowing for like veterancy skills and all of that stuff and other ways of advancement we wanted to really kind of allow people to sit in a comfortable familiar space with the playbook mechanics but also to change it and that you can customize yeah, like yourself in blocks, a lot of ways right? yeah yeah to kind of yeah. make it your own yeah. versus that first, was like yeah. one of our first design pieces yeah, yeah. I think also we wanted to figure out how moves would work for us because there has been discourse before about how the powered by the apocalypse concept of a move is not actually precise enough for the system that it belongs to. So how we wanted to structure moves was that they are narrative entry points in which mm-hmm. both failure and success could be interesting. So mm-hmm. that that's why we had our, our dice system where you you can fail, but you can also fail by succeeding too well. So mm-hmm. that's a thing. Then <laughs> we wanted to balance that out with a synergy of skills, wherein if you have a system, if you possess a particular skill, you can bend the system, manipulate it, or change the rules using those skills. So that's like mm-hmm. the two that that's like the second big part of it. So like the point was to create versatility and customizability and to emphasize that every part of our system can be moved around as you need and that they they build they build a building but you can change the floors and change the decor inside and it's not going to change the game itself and there's no such thing as breaking the game either yeah there's so many really i totally vibe with this because it's one of the reasons why i sort of like shy away from dnd fifth edition Uh, in D&D light games is because you know once you pick barbarian or whatever have you you're kind of that you don't really get to do much else with that you're like oh but you get to pick subclasses cool but I'm still gonna swing with my giant you know great axe because or great (laughs) sword because it's mechanic and mechanically optimal and etc except listen I'm the power gamer I'll I'll bring (laughs) you know what I mean I get but you know I've I really vibe with the lateral movement you can have with mm-hmm. the character you create because we're in this really interesting generation. There's a really interesting article that Ava Islam shared with me a, a long while back about the different 
generations of play culture. Uh-huh. And the one we're sort of currently in is the like original character concept culture uh, mm-hmm. or like OC culture for short. And mm. it's just this idea. And by no means is this article meant to like segment people into buckets, but there is this trend of people getting really attached to the characters they create. Right. Uh, yeah. So far flung from the OSR where like your character is expendable or it's like a resource of the world or whatever have you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And people get fan art for their characters. They kind of give them their own legacy and all of all of those pieces. And so I really think that this lateral design or customizable design is like a almost a transient response to what people like to play as nowadays. They love playing D&D because they feel like D&D is a system where they can sort of like coat whatever they want on top of the metrics of the system. You know, how many different ways can you slice a paladin in all its subclasses <laughs> and still have like a ton of different really cool concepts when it yeah. comes to creating characters. I, I like the fact that somebody attempted to make a descriptive a descriptive exercise on the fact that I think our current generations of playgroups have accepted the idea that it is okay to do whatever the hell you want with mm-hmm. your design mm-hmm. and your and your table for so long as people consent to it. Because mm-hmm. when I was a lot younger in tabletop, I, I know I sound like an old lady right now, but like when <laughs> when I was first playing, like people used to be very defensive about about stuff like Mary Sue's and Gary Sue's and, and standing mm-hmm. out and and not fitting the bill, right? But you have an increase of, of visible queer players and people who are learning that neurodivergence and disability and different forms of how life stress changes you with trauma, that's a thing now. And it really does come out in, in collaborative setups like Tabletop where everybody accepts that, one, your players and their characters are competent, two, they are owned by you, and three, Mm -hmm. the collective ownership of the table and the game in your hands will only succeed if everybody converses with each other and accepts those individual Mm -hmm. perspectives and intersections. So, like, it's no longer about succeeding mechanically. Mm -hmm. Like, if you wanted that experience, then cool, that's your thing, I'm not going to yuck your yum. But if you don't want that certain thing, how then do you build design that is friendly to that? So it's a big preoccupation of mine personally, because like I am a woman and I am very, very gay. So, and I have suffered the full gamut of being called not a good gamer and not a good RPer because I did not fit the T. So usually when you're in that position, what ends up happening is you tell yourself, God damn it, I'm just going to build my own shit, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus trying to fit into a system that just won't work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love it. Big hearts, big hearts for sure. (laughs) I also, you've inspired me. I don't know if this is going to go into my particular game, but the, Mm -hmm. the fact that you can, I love that you worked on both extreme ends of your dice system, right? You gain experience by failing and you gain experience by over-succeeding. Because I've always thought that you don't just learn from your failures. You also very much learn from your successes in real life, right? Like, oh, that worked. Uh So then, like, I can do it again, right? I can repeat that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is experience. So 
I think that's very cool. And I also like the thought of how that quote unquote successive failure is also like narratively an overextension, right? Like yeah. you've extended mm-hmm. yourself beyond a comfortable point that you put yourself at risk. You pushed yourself uh, a little. Yeah. 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 I think that's, I think that's super sick. I think that's really smart. And I think that that is something that PBTA slash forge in the dark is missing. I think that they need those sort of, I think actually probably most dice games need something that happens at the top end. That isn't just like more success. Right. Right. I guess. Yeah. Go ahead, success, go ahead. We also tried to make it narratively important yeah. through the threads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We have like a huge D100 table of threads that a lot of your overshoots will have you roll on that table. And there's mm-hmm. like, they're not always bad. Yeah, there they could be anything yeah. from, well, shit your your mission was apparently a problem for somebody else's mission yeah to your mm-hmm. exes and tell them what are you gonna do right yeah <laughs> it can be completely related to the mission you just did or something completely out of the blue mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah and uh, correct me if i'm wrong maybe maybe i'm projecting here but the also the character origins bits is so you were talking a little bit earlier about how you wanted very customizable characters mm-hmm. and did you like rip out vices and stuff and put them into the character origins because that's what the quirks feel like kind it feels of. like vice <laughs> or obligation style things and you've also attached them to the experience questions that would typically go on a on a forge in the dark yeah. yeah, thanks for catching that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was we've not actually had a lot of people they have realized that. People people notice these things. People also tend to forget that like there were a lot of powered by the apocalypse games. I think like second gen or third gen that tried to mm. do the overshoot thing. But it, oh, it's I do sort remember of, that. Yeah, it sort of fell to the wayside. Like my own personal design tried it before with a game that I call Sundo. So that's S-U-N-D-O. It's a Filipino word for the ghost that literally picks you up when it's you die. It's a psychopomp. Mm-hmm. Um, and like when, when I did my overshoot there, that was kind of like a prototype for what I tried to help Sid with in Nebethem, where I was like, mm-hmm. these overshoots really have to be narratively compelling and they also have to be a consensual thing. Like, yeah. it's okay to decide as a player that you don't want to overshoot and want to redo yeah. that. Because mm-hmm. we're both very strong believers in choice when it comes to tabletop. Because that is literally one of the only things that can make a tabletop game very compelling. Because in a video game, when you screw up, you have to reset and go to a save point, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. like, the system mm-hmm. itself is not going to change. There's going to be some RNG and whatever, but you're still going to have to do the thing. In tabletop, you can completely say, no, let's just erase the last three hours and start again. So the more... Yeah, the more bolting, That was all a dream. Yeah, it was all a dream. It didn't happen, right? And mm-hmm. for us, that's, that's, like, super important because you're dealing with human people. Not everybody is initially okay with the idea of failure. Mm-hmm. Or even the idea of consequence, and that's totally fine. I know that some mm-hmm. people think that that spoils their fun, but like, if if your table doesn't like it, then 
they should reserve the right to rewind the story mm-hmm. and find some kind of systematic or narrative compromise. Yeah, that's why yeah. we have the the wind back mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. in the game. Like we wanted to give all the players on the table, including the GM, a chance to kind of say that didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Let's let's so rewind. Do that, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's Prince of Persia it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh Let's my God, idea. Prince of Persia! <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just got sent back. <laughs> uh, I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah, I I think that it's so interesting that you allow sort of like an opt out, right? Yeah. Because I think that. In my experience, I have seen players that give, like, the okay thumbs up to when we're talking about, like, setting up a campaign of a particular game and the narrative is, like, a horror pushing or kind of, like, hopelessness pushing, like a grimdark sort of thing. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, I'm cool with character death as they twiddle their thumbs underneath the table. Like, maybe I'm okay with that. And then it comes push (laughs) and shove, right? And they're like, wait, no, I don't. I want nothing (laughs) bad to happen to my sweet Thomas. I think it's I think it's important that you have it's almost like a a lot of time in this moment I would even consider like flashback wind back or like opt outs as safety tools developed yeah. for those styles of games right like yeah. yep in a in an earlier episode of this podcast I spoke with Seb Pines who created the game Dwellings which is sort of like a choose your own adventure style game Mm-hmm. But they created a specific safety mechanic that was very like visceral and artifact based. So the game is horror based. It has some like it potentially has some like content warning trauma pieces in it, like the, the orc that could attach different traumas. So as you're flipping through the book, you have two two pieces of artifacts for you. One is the keyhole. Mm-hmm. which is this big mm-hmm. piece of paper or cardboard that actually fits into the book. And so oh. if you're starting to read a piece of fiction, that you're not like vibing with, you can put that keyhole over and the sort of like idea of is it's a safety tool. You have to unlock that when you want to go through it. Cause every, the dwelling is like in a house, it's like a horror house sort of narrative. And so mm-hmm. if you ever go back to that page, you can peek into the keyhole and be like, Oh, that's what this was. Do I want to go in there yet? No, I don't need to go in there right now. And then you can keep continuing through the book. So it's like this little, you can remind yourself what was there before you take the, the slat the or cut. Yeah, the next step to go through it. And the other one is a bookmark that is a key. And so if you're feeling uncomfortable or need to process something in the book, you put the key in as the bookmark. uh, And then when you're ready to unlock the book again, you take the key out. So it's like this sort of like visceral or verisimilitude style safety tool that I found really interesting. Um, I really like that. Yeah, we talked a lot about, you know, we're seeing a really big precedence on safety tools being written into games. But a lot of people, and I think the X card and stuff has done its job in like creating a a beginning acceptable space for safety tools. But we talked Mm -hmm. a lot about in that episode of like, well, do you actually need to craft like custom safety tools for your particular game, its particular genres? The X card isn't always going to work at a table. In fact, one situation I always recommend when people say like, oh, I want to write the X card into my game. Something you have to understand is that 
not everyone has the strength or confidence to reach across the table, grab the X card and hold it up in a group of like six strangers, especially like conventions and stuff. So like, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to engage with the X card when you're under that sort of pressure. Right. Or the rewind system. what is it called? Script change, I think is what it's called. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. But it's also, you know, we've already crossed the line on that one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we've already seen, like, the potential traumatic conditions. If someone, again, is not, like, emotionally aware enough mm-hmm. of themselves or have, like, enough self-awareness to see something coming. Um, right, right. Like, oh, we're building up to this thing that I don't like. We need to stop here. It mm-hmm. could already go, mm-hmm. right? We're, we can't, like, take back what we say or what we describe. Some, some, you could probably take a moment and step away from the table or whatever have you. Um, but basically, this is all to say that, like, the safety tools that a lot of people are relying on for their games in the current generation, I guess we'll say, are these X cards, script change, all these things. But I also think it's a little bit of a... Mm, I don't want to be mean, but the word... I'm not trying to be mean, but the word I'm using is sort of laziness. It's like this... Right there are these tools that exist. Everyone has accepted them. I'm just going to slap them into my game and not think any more about right. it. Right? Uh, yeah. Okay, so okay. it's like not precise okay. enough. Yeah. It's, yes, exactly. Yeah. Precision. Yeah. Thank you. That's a much it's, better it's, term. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of criticism about it because I, I did have some conversations with like John Stravopoulos about, mm-hmm. about script change and other things. And the, the general sense is that, the problem with not seriously thinking about consent and the tools at your table mm-hmm. is that people are not using them to, they're not really using them as tools for assistance. They're hoping that they'll just be band aids on shotgun wounds. Yeah. When yeah. in a reality, they're more like cop outs. Yeah. Like you're, but, but the thing is, they're there to like, they're there to regulate things, but they're not there to just automatically go, this game is safe. Like you have to Mm -hmm. foster the environment of safety and consent. You have to Mm -hmm. figure out the gaps in your own design that may create room for problems because like, I'm a personal believer in the idea that there's no such thing as universal good or bad. And there, uh, there's also no such thing as like good people and bad people. They're just consistent actions towards bad stuff or good stuff. Like, so if Mm -hmm. you put that, in like I feel like if you keep that in mind, then you understand that sometimes the grossest violations of safety are done with, without awareness at all, and mm-hmm. that'll bleed into your design. So if you understand that, then that should make you a lot more careful with developing precisely the tools that you can do for people, and also developing this thing that one of my other designer friends likes talking about, which is post-traumatic care in a way. Like, mm-hmm. what do you do to recover? After, yeah. after something like that because we don't have enough tools for that either. How do you regain? Yeah, how do you regain aftercare. your sense of... Yeah, yeah aftercare. Yeah. Like, you don't... How do you regain your sense of self after? How do you... How do you return to a place of good faith and trust? And, and how do you stop the bleed? Yeah. How or do you stop the not bleed? even yeah. stop the bleed. How do you manage the bleed? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there... Like, another. Go ahead, go Just ahead. speaking from personal design... And as a player experience, when I was a player and I didn't quite understand the concept of consent yet, mm-hmm. like my early, early days of playing, there was this thing I used to do where I would pretend that I was getting a call during parts of the game where like, I'd be getting a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I'd, I'd get my phone and then I'd put it to my ear and be like, 
hello, hello. Like freaking Academy Award goes to, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I go out to like somewhere else. Like I remove myself from the table. I excuse myself. I go somewhere and I fake a conversation and I just kind of like take this time to calm myself down. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't actually until I was going to be a player at Pam's game where I talked about that as if it was normal, as if it wasn't a bad thing at all. Mm-hmm. And very adamantly, Pam was like, there's nothing, there's no doing that in my table. Like she was trying to basically make sure, and this was before Pam and I were even anything. Like we weren't mm-hmm. dating yet at the time. She she told me, and she was trying to make sure that if there is anything making you uncomfortable, that she will be there to kind of like talk it out, or like we can take a break. It's okay to ask for a break, and that was personally so revolutionary to me at the time mm-hmm. having come from tables where they just keep going on whether you left the table or not right yeah. so moving forward from that i want i when i started designing navithem <laughs> cuz pam was my editor and my co-designer <laughs> and so i'd have like little parts at the beginning of the <laughs> the whole thing where there'd be little design notes of like, by the way, if you're going to do this part, please be aware of people's triggers, etc., etc. And I do genuinely believe I put that in way too many parts <laughs> of the text because <laughs> I was so nervous about like people taking on like concepts of like being war-torn or like, because mm-hmm. we have one origin here called Child of the Upheaval. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, like, we had to revise that so many times. Yeah. Yeah. Because the concept of Navithem and its history is that it's very... There's a lot of conflict. Yeah, there's a lot of conflict. Yeah. It's not born and rooted in conflict, but, but it exists. Conflict. <laughs> like yeah. real life. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Our origin... A child of an upheaval is supposed to be re- referencing the rather tumultuous history of Navathim, where while Navathim itself is not born out of, or rather, while conflict is not the be all end all of, of Navathim, it does exist. And I wanted to make sure, and I was really trying really hard to make sure that people would not turn this into trauma porn, poverty porn, or mm-hmm. war porn, <laughs> because I'm quite strongly against that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I always say that I like writing stories about defiance and revolution and rebellion, but that's also not people's license to turn it into their... I guess, trauma fantasy or mm. war fantasy or something like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure lots of people will take whatever they want and play it however they want. But it, within the text of Navathim, I wanted to make sure that that came across. 
and I'm pretty sure I had to like really kind of hold my hand when it came to writing that part. I think Child of an Upheaval went through like maybe three or four changes before it finally was what it was. Yeah. 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 Because it took me a while. Like it was the last origin that I really kind of like nailed it down. Mm-hmm. But yeah. 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 You know. Yeah. Yeah, it. I, you know, I. It's it's so hard. There are definitely genres that I want to explore and talk about and use as like jumping off points, but it's so easy to do a poor job at getting people set up for that. If you're, if yeah. You're, <laughs> and I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm talking about myself. You know. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know what it's like to be in war. I don't watch a lot of war stories. I don't read a lot mm-hmm. of war stories. I don't, you know, I haven't seen any interviews. I, I can understand that war is hell at, at the surface level of it, just as an example. Right. Or how to do horror right, or even how to do, like, epic fantasy in a way that isn't trite and, and you know, what I would find. Colonial? Yes, yes. Ex- thank you. Yes, there is. <laughs> what am I looking for in this one? Um, yeah very like conquering mindset or like assimilation based Mm -hmm. or whatever have you or white hero yeah yeah mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. listen there is not one time from me deciding that i'm against the greater european patriarchy that every (laughs) single one of my characters will be bald or dreaded (laughs) and have dark sea skin like there's no way you're gonna get me to play anything if Dwarves don't ha- aren't usually that. I don't give up. I don't give up. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My elf dreads and hot black, dude. But yeah, it can. It I can understand the care you both took in presenting certain origin backgrounds because, and you know, any character creation piece because those are going to inform role play, right? Like these mm-hmm. works, these experience questions, the magic that you choose, the the seven that you choose to have sort of like a legacy from, all of those are going to play into helping someone wrap their head around the setting and make mm-hmm. role play decisions at least from the rip until they develop their own sort of more refined choices. Yeah. Mhm. I love it. It's so good. It's so great. Thank you. I I also really like just as the last bit of actually no no because we're we're at the we're like the fifty minute mark here, uh, and I know you two are uh, up. You you're going late on this one, and pants are like at work tomorrow. So I want to move in. Listen, I care. We're going to sort of uh, move into. The, we could go forever about Navatham Zen, which just means you have to go buy it get it, read it <laughs> absorb it yeah. realize mm-hmm. the cool design mm, yeah you kind of have to do that you don't get to hear any more about it here but if you're <laughs> curious you should definitely check it out but there are a couple of extra topics that we wanted to get into today one of one of the bigger ones first presents is, is digital versus print so we talked about earlier that you can get navathon's end at least digitally and talking about the what are your what are your thoughts on the digital print landscape as we continue to innovate on, on different ideas? Well, the, the reality of it, and I'll be super harsh, is that 
the Philippine side in particular lives and dies on digital copies. Mm-hmm. We do not have inherent means of of efficiently mass producing books down here. We just don't mm-hmm. have publishers. And we do not have publishers at all. Furthermore, shipping between Southeast Asian countries is absolute hell. Like I know mm-hmm. that whenever I talk to people from abroad, they're like, yeah, it's pretty bad over here. And I'm like, are you sure? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you sure, <laughs> you so sure about that? Yeah, someone in Cleveland complaining about like 20-minute traffic. Have you been to San Francisco, brother? Have you been to Los Angeles? <laughs> You're in a three-hour commute. You don't know anything about traffic. <laughs> and like it's the same with, with Philippines. Because like, for example, I have friends in Malaysia and Indonesia and none of us want to ship to each other. Yep. It's more efficient for us to sh- literally ship to somebody in the States uh-huh. and have that person from the States ship back to us than what? it is to ship. Yeah, that's yes. how bad it is. Yes. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. You have to triangulate yeah. your shipping? Yes. We have to triangulate our shipping across because, an ocean. <laughs> because our post, our post offices just do not talk to each other. They don't. Mm. What happens is your mail is going to get lost and then when it finally arrives in the place where it's supposed to go it's going to get blocked by customs and they're going to make you pay inordinate amounts of money because of the quote-unquote hassle that yeah, they had that to, you put them through yeah for yeah. holding on to your that's stuff. how it goes yeah. yeah so so physical is just not possible for us right uh-huh. um sure. and it it was honestly i'm going to use the word heartbreaking but the other word I use is kind of rage-inducing mm. that like a lot of people immediately retracted support during our Kickstarter funding period because they learned that we do not have physical copies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Sin, yes. Sin got a lot of that. People I got going like, oh, I can't pay you because you don't have a physical copy of your game. Yeah, they just walked away. It was pretty sad. Yeah, and that sucks. Because mm, imagine, yeah. like, uh, I'm going to be that bitch in the room and say my game is awesome. Yeah. And like, since I'd my agree. game is awesome. <laughs> since, since our game is awesome like what about everybody else who is on par with us des- design wise and even better than us in many cases design wise like are you just going to say no to what they have to offer just because you can't hold a dead tree copy of their work mm-hmm. and yes. honestly what particularly bothered me is Navathan was kickstarted with three big projects and a zine of smaller projects. Mm-hmm. Typically, in a Kickstarter, you only get one project, right? So mm-hmm. people who walked away from backing Nabathim's End during the Kickstarter campaign also walked away from backing all those other projects. So it wasn't just us who suffered, you know? Mm-hmm. And that just sucks. But just because we couldn't produce print copies, they just walked away. And the thing about that is the truth of print is that the countries that make it so essential, like the U.S. and the U.K., are adhering to inherently white biases. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very old white boomer to want a physical thing when none of us really play face to face anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's that too, right? And like 
I've I've seen a lot of very innovative design, like the kind of design that makes me go, why the fuck did I not think about that? From designers who knew that they wanted their game to not be in print. They wanted to use chat rooms. They wanted to mm-hmm. use Roll20. They wanted to play on Friggy's Discord. Discord or on like Google Meet or something. Like they, they made games out of that. Mm-hmm. So that level of innovation is something that people who are biased towards print are denying. I'm not saying uh-huh. that print is bad. What I'm saying is we need to expand our thinking mm-hmm. if, if we want mm-hmm. to diversify our spaces. Because like it's also economically friendly to diversify in that direction because... Not everybody is going to have the capability to produce 200 plus upwards of books, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and you're I've, locking out a lot of people. You're locking out a lot of people. And like, it's not, you're not just locking out like us. Uh, a lot of the creators I know who are also in the UK and are also in America, you're wishing hell upon them by uh-huh. insisting that they, they, they post all of these friggin' books and send them through the mail and pay out of their nose for that stuff while or, demanding expert AAA quality uh-huh. of which we cannot produce, and that's okay. Like Because like, the inherent bias, as I see it here, is everybody's demanding a AAA product without understanding the amount of work, time, and energy that it does to create those. It's almost like people are not allowed to make mistakes if you are not D&D. Right. And the, mm-hmm. the additional ironic part about that, they demand AAA, but the moment you price your books AAA, higher than, not buy it to you. Yeah, not higher buy. than like $20, yep. they won't buy it. They won't buy it. Like, put your money where your mouth is, God <laughs> What do you want here? <laughs> What do you want? It's, it's, the, it's a running meme of, am I a joke to you? <laughs> do, do people know how many people we have to manage when we make products like that? I Like in Navithim alone, and it's a small project compared to like a lot of other projects. Yeah. Yeah. I had to manage seven artists. Seven. I don't know. I had to manage a lot of artists. And technically, mm-hmm. if we wanted to meet the kind of punitive standards people wanted, then I should not have been editor, nor should mm-hmm. I have been the sensitivity person, which would have added at least two to five other people to the docket. Mm-hmm. Then we already had a layout artist who was a friend of ours, and he was very generous in saying, like, hey, I'm going to lay out your entire book. If Paladin had not done that, that meant that Sin would have had to lay out it on top of doing all the side work mm-hmm. and on top of listening to like, my edits, right? Crying. <laughs> Crying, <laughs> sobbing, and puking Nabithim <laughs> for the next few months. <laughs> and it was so funny, too. I, I randomly tweeted it. I was like, do I have the money to hire a layout artist? Of which, like, I tweeted immediately after, who the heck am I kidding? I don't have that <laughs> no, money. No, I don't. <laughs> uh... Like, if I were a person, like, looking at my portfolio, I wouldn't afford me. You Same. <laughs> I can't afford me. I can't afford me. Damn. <laughs> Where are we going to go? <laughs> that's yeah. existential, if anything. <laughs> and that's another thing. This is something that we, I remember me and BJ Rensho talked about before. Uh-huh. If us Filipinos hired each other at our current rates, because we're hire- we're pricing ourselves according to international standards, right? Right. Mm-hmm. If us Filipinos hired each other on the current rates that we have according to international standards, none of us would be able to hire each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. we can't afford it. Because our, our 
cost of living here is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, it is not cheap to live it here. Not. It's like it's it it's obviously quote unquote cheaper to live here than it is to let's say live in the States. New York or whatever. But sure, if sure. if you're still based here, it's still very expensive. Right. You're it's, fighting it's those, for space all the time. Yeah, it, it's a lot. It, the the print thing is always going to like wake up a lot of feelings in in designers here, as will rates, uh, and as will the whole argument that you have to charge your worth, so to speak. People expect you to charge your worth, but they won't pay for you. Yeah. So it's like, what do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> my my best example of this is always Pam's own own experience when they went to BBC. Pre-BBC, we had to help her get a bunch of people's games and put them in, like, print them out and basically put them in her suitcase and have her somehow manage to market all of those games on her own in a hectic con. And, like... The fact that we have to do that. I had a suitcase and a backpack full of print of upwards of 13 designers. And we had to introduce the concept of creating QR codes for every single designer that would, like, give their games to us. We had to generate upwards of, like, 30 I got paper cuts and I broke a stapler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You broke an expensive stapler. I broke an expensive stapler. Yeah, yeah. I'm still crying over that. The, the thing about that is, how much of that reflected back to the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did we get more attention, RPGC, as a, as a whole and as general? Yeah, we did. And, and we're kind of on the map, quote-unquote, because people know the hashtag. People know creators from, from our place. But I would argue that the fact that Pam had to break her back at a convention for that, when she could have used that to market herself, to get for herself, it's just, you know, it's a little, it's a little unfair that... Mm. People can just waltz into, like, people from there in the States can just waltz into the said con and do what they want and not have to worry about the suitcase and the backpack and whether the games have been sold and whether word has been sent out. It it just, it feels like we have to throw all of our bargaining chips just to have a seat at the table. Yeah. Why and why has that not changed years later? Yeah, that's that's a heartbreaking thing. You know, like, we're all yeah. still trying to throw all of our chips at the table, and uh, it's hard. It, it's it's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. and I we're at a point where sometimes you look at the community and you hope that that some people will make it. That, that they will have their own initiative to also push forward and and find opportunities. And then whenever opportunities do present themselves, 
you kind of pass it along and see if they get hired too. If 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 maybe word will spread that there's more than just I don't know five people in RPGC. <laughs> that's the whole thing, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the whole point of a movement and like a a community. You. you you want to shine the light on everybody. You want to make multiple tables. You want to make sure that everybody gets supported. But it's just so hard. It's just not the case sometimes. Because for some reason, the centers of the tabletop sphere right now do not trust you unless they meet you face to face. And that's a cruel or, or reality. Or have a product uh, physical. Or that your product is physical. physical. And that's a cruel reality that a lot of us smaller designers have to face. Because... That's just how they... That's just how it is. (laughs) And sometimes you have to kind of swallow the fact that your passport will not be powerful enough to bring you to those centers. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And that your day job will just not generate enough money to pay for the ticket to bring you to those centers. And it's just a lot. Like if I, if I really went into all of it, we'd be here forever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, first of all, I'm highly dampened by, by all this. And this is not, this is not new to me. I've had actually quite a few Filipino guests on the show so far Uh and also some Malaysian guests you know, I, me personally, Jeremy Gage is very aware of like the state of affairs when it comes to print and digital for <laughs> the different sectors of, of the globe. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the people that are like, well, I like to have a nice book in my hand. You can eat my whole ass, dude. Like, <laughs> we're, we're quickly moved. We have a tiny computer in our pocket, right? And apps are getting more sophisticated every day. Um, when I my phone stuff, is smarter than me. Yeah, my phone legitimately really is. is smarter than I am. You know, there it's it it feels like the um, I don't want to learn how to use TikTok. I don't want to learn how <laughs> yeah. to use Adobe. I don't want to learn how to use Affinity Public. Gosh. All the conversations that are these, like I have to have a print book. I can't read off like a digital screen or something like that or like use it right because i think people feel like oh if i have a physical book i can flip to pages or whatever or i can bookmark them and stuff if you had learned the power of a of kindle or or the book app and i can only speak for apple because i'm in the garden there are highlight tools bookmarking tools you can write up your own documents in god blessed google docs or obsidian and backlink yourself or use notion or whatever like First of all, on the digital front, just as a talk like, not just not just to be like a doomsayer along with this conversation, and that's not to dismiss or belittle mm-hmm. uh, the the plight that everyone is going through when it comes to this conversation. Mm-hmm. But you know, what does Navithim's End look like if you designed a Notion template with like backlinking and stuff like that, and that you sold that as a part of like a QR code or something in the game, right? I think there are some like, in this conversation of digital versus print, I think there's some extra like accessible tools that we can look at to redefine the quote unquote PDF, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people that complain about that, that print versus digital in the for print team, I think it feels like too much of a headache for them because when you have a physical book, right, I'm going to pick up one in my hand just so I can talk through what I'm going through. Sure. Sure. Um, 
you know, I know, like I have Band of Blades in my hand. I know that the broken sits somewhere in the first third of the book, like just off the rip. So I can open up to the first mm-hmm. third and and do that, right? Just More physically, or less find and, it. yeah, and and find a way to find it. And in digital, you know, I know there's a table of contents. Don't even fucking get me started. <laughs> or you know, someone's like, I, go ahead. You can control F. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, there you go. See. Ex- but so, you know, people don't know about control F <laughs> you, for real. You would be surprised with the eyes that I see light up in my own play. You're like, yeah, you can just control F on, on your computer. Like, what is that? What is But what I'm uh, essentially pointing to is a lack of wanting to adapt and learn or yes, evolve sure. along with the play space, right? It's the traditionalism. It's the analog. It's the, you know, digital. I, we could have a conversation about whether or not print or digital is cheaper, right? You could say digital is cheaper, but like there's the cost of computer and an internet yeah. subscription. And like mm-hmm. there right, are yeah. certain facilitations that digital requires to exist, right? But mm-hmm. I will say, and also those pro- those materials may not be good for the environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. We could talk at nauseum about it. But um, there are people who can't facilitate print, as you've described here today, right? And I do think there is definitely a consideration. And there are people making small strides in those directions. We look at the new virtual tabletops that are being created with, like, Roll and Astral and... Right. Um, what was that? Arcane? Arcane something? Oh, I've uh, never heard of that. Okay. Th- yeah, it's a really new one. But, you know, people are trying to figure out, like, how do we make a table, t- you know, tabletop simulator, obviously. <laughs> and there are tools. They take some learning. And nothing is easier than just, like, coming to a table with a book and being able to, like, improv that stuff, right? And write on index cards. Just everyone feels like it's a little bit more or a little less finicky, a little less friction some people think that it's easier for them to like transcribe that stuff with their body rather than mm-hmm. the tool they're using right so i think yeah. that's part of that, that can i can i cut in here yeah Just yeah yeah bit. go ahead that's really funny to me because all my years of playing D, for example of which i played i think a good number of years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i've never once owned a physical copy of the player's handbook same, same. and <laughs> It's all PDFs in my phone. And I actually used to rely on a lot of apps, like the mm-hmm. Spellbook app oh, yeah. that's available oh, on yeah. Google Play, something like that. And like a character sheet app or something. Like mm-hmm. everything was, was digital. And Everyone uses D&D Beyond, was, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when I, was, when I was DMing too, I'd have like a soundboard on my phone, like all of that stuff. Everything was, was digital. The only thing that was analog was dice, but you could have dice rollers too. Yeah. People don't trust and, them. <laughs> yeah. My, my players were pretty superstitious, Yeah, but you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, I, my, my experience with tabletop has always been digital. So mm-hmm. this insistence on physical it's so it's not that it's not like it's a stranger thing to me. Mm-hmm. I understand it. Like I too want to rub the physical book of Navathan's yeah. end on my cheek and yeah. smell <laughs> the book. You know, I get it. But to require it of designers is nothing yeah. short of 
shutting the gate and throwing away the key. Yeah, 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 for sure. I totally agree. It's like uh, personally, mm -hmm. I really want to make an app for Navathimsen, like a character sheet app. Yeah. And just kind of like have them, you know, but like making an app is, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Yeah. Yeah. I wish. And I don't think I have the money. We do not. To pay. no, somebody yeah, no, <laughs> it's expensive <laughs> like I don't know how much money of a kickstarter I'd have to like set the goal for an app <laughs> six digits minimum mm, yeah, yeah for yeah, sure yeah that's right for sure. yeah I and, I definitely I definitely think that like there are ways to provide like a really ease of you you know I've had other people on the show who talk about PDF is not the optimal digital support mm-hmm. file format. There's a lot of other more accessible like EPUB formats and things like that. And also, like I mentioned earlier, the whole just notion is the only example I can think of where you could type it up, sell it as a template on like Gumroad or something. People could have it and then has a bunch of backlinking resources and right. you can write inside of it and stuff like that. But I think there, there are some additional digital tools that we can use out there when it comes specifically to the games market of how to sell books, like, like rewriting what a book is right. Mm-hmm. PDF was sort of like the first transition of like, Oh, a book can be digital. Right. But what else can, the book or the game be put into or use, right? Mm -hmm. And I think of a lot of these backlinking research tools like Obsidian, Research Roam, Notion, God Blessed. Can't remember the other one. Is it Bear? I think Bear is another good one. Uh, Uh, mm -hmm. Bear Notes. But there's that and apps, like digital apps that help supplement or streamline the user experience. I think that's it. There it is. I finally got there. I think the whole thing is a conversation about user experience and why people are so Uh finicky about digital versus print, right? They feel, for the people who fight for print, they feel that print is the better user experience for them because they understand Mm -hmm. how to open a third of the book really easily. They have the assumptions of certain artifact tools. Yeah, yeah, And they have a physical thing to hold on to and they feel like they are using it properly because yeah. they immediately find the information that they're trying to find without yeah. pressing too many buttons, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And versus like trying to learn digital, it's like, oh, you know, control F, magical. Highlighting stuff, writing up your own notes, which I'm sure people do in like what Microsoft OneNote and Google Docs and stuff like that mm-hmm. all the time. Could you even sell a game as a Google Doc, right? Like, yes, I know you can sell the Google Doc Thing, but could you like build a game around the concept of backlinking in a Google Doc as well, which is really fascinating. Technically, I did for a while for another them because one of my higher tiers on my Patreon is that you get to see the live documents of any mm. any game that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you get to see the process. You get to watch me actually like type Do in the real thing. time. Yeah. And type back at see... Pam going, babe, help mm-hmm. me. Yeah, yes, or, or, see my, or, or see my comments of like, that's fucking sick. Or, I don't know what we're going to do, but that's sick. Or my comments of like, I accidentally okayed a a revision without properly reading your note. 
I'm healthy. sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, like that was actually, or rather, that is one of the benefits of my my one of my Patreon tiers that you can kind of like see the live document. So Nevenham has been out for years. <laughs> <laughs> Heard that, but I I really do now that I've gotten my my head towards this thought direction. I really think it's all about user experience. I think this whole conversation relies on the big topic of user experience when it comes to the role, a tabletop role-playing game and using it as a reference book, right? Because yeah. oftentimes yeah. that's yeah. what it is. It's a, it's a reference for something you need to look up. Otherwise, you don't need to look in the book, right? And yep. it's also yep. the user experience of the character sheet or the dashboard. How does that user experience on digital feel versus print for a lot of people it's Mm -hmm. and it's also user experience also includes like the the events of things not just the usability of things right so some people probably fight for print like you said physical dice it is it is a ton of joy to hear it to see it to be on the ride with a d20 that won't stop spinning um, it's disappointing <laughs> oh when gosh. you roll a D4, right? Because it just clumps on the table. It's fun to write. Mm-hmm. It's fun to erase. You're using your body, right? How do mm-hmm. those things transition? What's fun about the digital space is the user experience, right? It's it's being a master of your reference, it's being a master of your knowledge. It's being able to like mm-hmm. find the process mm-hmm. that gets you to the information quickest, right? It's all mm-hmm. the cutting out the fat of the process, at least for me, when it comes to digital, it's about writing up those notes and then having the best process to get to and from different pockets of information that I'll need at any mm-hmm. time on my lore document or whatever have you. So aside from, there's additional, con- it's not just user experience. I think a big part of it is that, But the other conversation is accessibility to materials and infrastructure when it comes to digital versus print. As you were talking about earlier, that your shipping infrastructure is, from what I'm hearing, triangulation garbage. (laughs) Yes, uh, basically non-existent. Those are my words, but your feelings. And (laughs) it is unfair for the purchasers to support the hashtag rpgc but be very you know it's the same things when corporations do pride stuff right it's like yes. oh yeah. they're, ra- they're essentially right? yeah yeah it's so performative it's, yeah it's, it's form- yes yeah. thank you that's the word i couldn't find it but thank you performative for sure it's like yes rpgc but we still want our do de- and let me let me put i've mentioned this on the show before but let me put something in perspective for someone who may be new here this is your first episode let's talk about how much D&D 5e actually costs. In a perfect <laughs> world, you're at a table of five people, four players, uh-huh. and one DM. The mm-hmm. DM's guide is $50. A player's mm-hmm. handbook is $50. The monster mm-hmm. manual, $50. That's $150 for D&D 5th edition. Now, all the rules are in the player's handbook, for sure. So you could only buy that and be satisfied. However, at some point, you're each going to want your own copy. So that is at least mm-hmm. five copies of the player's handbook, totaling to $250. So mm-hmm. if you were to get all three books for your group of five people, you're spending $350 at some point for D&D 5th edition. It is not a $50 game. Oh, don't forget... Official supplements. Sure, yeah. Guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I want all those juicy subclasses. I want my Tasha's Cauldron mm-hmm. fucking yeah. races yep. bull- bullshit, mm-hmm. right? My race rewrite. Mm-hmm. I want the new, what did they just come out with? 
the radiant citadel. No, the Mordenkainen's thing that like. Oh, that thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah, patch yeah, right, update. Right, right. Gotta buy the patch update, yeah. dude. Yeah, uh-huh, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so. And then you gotta look up the errata. Yeah. yeah. So when mm-hmm. end is you know a hundred dollar book, that might be okay actually, because you might need only the one. <laughs> Can't even imagining, like. Charging a hundred dollars for a single book. I wish I wish we could is the thing. But like we we only charged twenty five and people were already struggling with that. Yeah, wow. you know you know. This is what I've been observing with Thems Analytics for the past few like weeks since we launched. And I'm not gonna bore you with numbers, but literally the system that we have right now is that for every two payments I put up a community copy. And this is more because I want to make it sustainable for me and Pam, mm. where we earn something, but we also give back. We also give back, right? Yeah. Mm. And beyond that, we also have to remember that we had 935 backers during the Kickstarter campaign. So that's potentially 935 people within our networks and circles that will now no longer need to buy the twenty-five dollar mm-hmm. current cost of Navithem's end on itch, mm-hmm. and beyond that, and this is like I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. I happily give free copies of the book to people who want to review it, for people who cannot quite afford it, mm-hmm. for people who were part of the design journey, like my artists. I give them all mm-hmm. free copies, mm-hmm. so there's that too, right? And so. Every time I release like two, three, five community copies within the hour and even less than, they're all gone. And I've never had a game have this sort of behavior on itch before. Mm. So for me, my interpretation of that is they can't afford the $25 cost. So they're waiting for community copies to come up. And when it does, they eat it all up. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they can afford. They can't pay for it, so they wait for the community copies. And that's Mm -hmm. the point of community copies, right? Mm -hmm. But is Navithan then too expensive? (laughs) That's where my head goes, right? No. But that is the thing, right? Mm-hmm. We had to go on sale for the first like two weeks after launch because I wanted to see how much we would sell at a lower price point versus the, versus the current price point. Mm-hmm. And ever since the sale ended, we've not had a single sale. So, right? Yeah. They wanted yeah. at a lower price point. Like the data tells me I should lower prices. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, but me if and I my, surprise this, me, me and my we partner, won't have a profit. She she is a photographer, and mm-hmm. she this I think this is a very interesting like coupling in here. Mm-hmm. She's a photographer, and she charges about three digits worth for like a headshot, right? Right. There right. are some photographers who do what are called like mini sessions every once in a while. It's like a little sale thing, right? Mm-hmm. And. The mini sessions are like 30 bucks or whatever have you. You get a cut, you get like a headshot, you get a couple of snaps, you get one outfit change, whatever. Whatever the metrics are don't really matter in this particular example. Mm-hmm. 
the issue with <laughs> capitalism and consumerism is that we're trained to look for deals, right? And especially mm. in more artist-driven or creative-driven industries that don't have like a tangible objective use outside of like entertainment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The consumer has been trained that like this industry is, I'll say it, low-key desperate to like make funds on games. And mm-hmm. so they wait. They There are people out there who know that when your initial bulk of sales are done, you will try to sell more games because you need that money. You're hungry for that dollars and you're still working on your other projects or whatever have you. So there are legitimately people who probably have the the mindset strategy of like, this will go on sale eventually when it does, I'll purchase. And then Mm -hmm. the second you do that, you have also shown people that, oh, it can go on sale, so I'll wait for the next sale. The same thing happens Mm -hmm. with my partner. The first time she did the mini sessions, people are like, oh, I'll just wait for it. Like, they're like, hey, all right, do, you, do you do headshots and stuff? I see that you did like some mini session things over here. Yeah, I'm currently not doing those. You know, my full photo shoots are this amount of money. That's all right. I'll just yeah. wait for the next mini shoot. Yeah. Yep. And that's tragic. That's absolutely yeah. tragic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, but it mm-hmm. also shows that those people didn't need it that bad, right? Which is unfor- an unfortunate conversation to have when talking about Navithim Zen is like, oh, I don't need it that bad. If it goes on sale, I'll get it, right? Which is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. not a fun thing to say, but like that's how they're thinking, right? Uh, it's like, oh, it'll be fun to have, but it's not something mm-hmm. like I'm dying for. I think the, the mm-hmm. community, the fans that are like dying to have the game are the ones that are going to pay the price point. I talk about this all the time with my creative friends as far as like a business end of stuff. Is A perfect example is we do a dog service out here called Rover, which is house sitting, boarding, whatever have you for cats and dogs. Aww. And- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I watch a lot of puppers. We actually have a meeting tomorrow for one, oh, and we're starting another. I one want a, a hug from a dog. <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, so you know, you look at the market of your area. I live in the greater Cleveland area, so I look at what everybody else is charging. But I also charge based on my income. You charge based on your international rights for your more proper services, right? Like outside of the game for all your design right. pieces and consultation. So, mm-hmm. what I've learned is that the people who want something cheap will buy the cheap things. The people who have the money for the services you're offering will buy from you. So our boarding rate is $75 per night for the dog to be here. And I don't I don't uh, have reference. Is that competitive mm. or is that like expensive? Uh, it is expensive for the area. Like I I would okay. say the next closest is 50 50 bucks or something like that. So like oh, okay, okay, the yeah. price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the reason I charge that is a I'm thinking about the 20% that the Rover app will take from me. So I'm not really making okay, 75, right. I'm actually making like 67 or something like that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then I also because I'm my own business or freelancer or whatever, I have to think about taxes at the end of the year, right? So I'm also losing another potential 15% of that. So I'm actually yep. making is 50 expendable dollars that have to go to other things like rent mm-hmm. or food or luxuries if I can afford them, right? So when I what all those examples are to say that like A, Navithan Zen could probably be more expensive. B, there are people that if, they, if you get, like, a good marketing push or something like that and, like, just the right person finds you or is really interested in what you're selling, they're going to buy it. They're going to buy it at that price, right? I think that the quote that always sticks with me 
It's like from some cheesy self-help financial business guru mm-hmm. kind of thing. But <laughs> I, I think what is true about it is you don't need 10,000 customers. You need a thousand true fans. A thousand true fans are a thousand people who are willing to spend a hundred dollars a month on whatever you're selling on whatever you're giving them services, products, whatever have you. Right. And you can even, you know, we're an industry that plays in tens and hundreds, not really thousands and millions. So if you could Uh find a hundred people, right. That are willing to buy 50 bucks from you every month. That's $5,000 a month. I'm speaking us. I don't know what the Filipino currency is, but fit 5,000 us dollars, right. A month for 12 mm-hmm. months. If you can find those hundred people, you're good. Right. And you're mm-hmm. able to charge what you want to charge. So I know it's such a tough thing to be like, I want Navithams M to be affordable, accessible. I want to be at a price point that people who are in the games industry or who are game cons- cons- consumers will purchase. But there are board games out there that cost $400, $300, $120, $180 with expansions that are another $100, right? We just talked about how D&D 5th Edition is a $350 game at the end of the day, not mm-hmm. including any supplements. So, like, I don't know. It's it's your game and it's your own situation. But for me, I, I never think that you should charge less. I always think a person should charge more because there are people that can afford it in, a, you know, the European monstrosities that are U.S. <laughs> and UK, which, by the record, I would totally consider the United States a European country as far as I'm concerned. That, you know, we <laughs> spawned from that. So And, and like, that's, that's all, like, wonderful and stuff. And, like, that really should be how things are. Yeah. But, and, and... I guess that's also why, I mean, that's kind of why we're doing this podcast, right? We're yeah. trying to get people, more people to understand to understand yeah. what Navithams and is that it's fun and it's actually worth the buck. Yeah. And that's why I am staying up at ridiculous hours sometimes or waking up at ridiculous hours because I am helping to like facilitate like actual plays because for them, it's completely reasonable hour at their time zone but for mine it's not mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but it's i need to be there, there right now per this recording we're it's yeah, yeah. Here, midnight there it's goofy yeah. <laughs> and and so like you know you a part of that like the whole navitim's end is worth it and you just have to find like your audience and etc but what a lot of people and i think what a lot of designers also have to kind of reckon with is the legwork mm-hmm. that it takes. Yeah. You are one of, I think, 30 people that I contacted day two after lunch mm-hmm. of Navithams End, where I was like, hey, would you be interested in, in talking about this game on your show and whatnot? And like, I, I sent a lot of messages to people, I sent emails. I sent Twitter DMs. I sent a lot of things. And I sent like free copies and all that mm-hmm. stuff in an attempt to help market the game. And, mm-hmm. you know, not a lot of people know, how, uh, one, not a lot of people know how to do that. And I'm not saying I'm some great guru. I also don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people get particularly burnt out by that kind of stuff. I've, yeah. I've, I've talked to a lot of people 
who have just it's a whole job fizzled out it's a whole job yeah 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 and and and, you know it's just it's just a lot of work yeah and like i'm not i'm not saying i'm not complaining too hard no, because. I'm complaining. I'll complain for you because <laughs> it, marketing is tough. A lot, a lot of people. It is. Not, it's super nice. It, it's it's super tough. It's super tough to be at the grind every, you know, canvassing a neighborhood, right? Just on on your feet. Uh-huh. Imagine that doing that every day. The door to door salesman life. Now mm-hmm. imagine doing that on the internet where people can have like really intense amenity about like they could uh-huh. just easily ignore your message. They or just get, forget or forget or just yeah. forget or like give you the, the and you, like, you, oh you're not big enough or whatever mm-hmm, like, yeah exactly I'll, no i'll throw up i'll, I'll actually throw up uh, like you have to make them take. feel like it's worth yeah. their time yeah you have to make so, them feel like um it's, so it's it's even worth like a look and I've, I've had a lot of people ask me do you have a quick start guide or do you have like something for me to look at first? And <laughs> I'm just like, I have 230 plus pages. Yeah. 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 I don't know how I'm going to turn that into a quick start. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I get it. And I get it. as much as I want to make a quick start guide, the whole thing about that also is where am I going to find the time? Am I just going to reuse art assets? Is that okay with my artists? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How am I going to market that? Yep. And where do I put it? Should it be a separate itch.io listing? How do I market that part? Is it going to be free? Is it going to be like $5 less, $10 less? Like how, how much is it going to be? The whole yep. point of a quick start guide is that people can get it and play, plug and play, yep. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then, like that, say from two hundred thirty pages, you make a quick start guide that's like maybe twenty pages. That's still twenty pages mm-hmm, that I will mm-hmm. have to lay out on my own because I don't have the money. Distilled from the two hundred. Mm-hmm. And like I don't have the money to pay a layout artist. I don't count on the goodwill of every single friend of mine to be like, "Oh, I'll lay out for you for free." I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just a lot of work to put out something cheap. Because yeah. then you have to also consider how much itch.io takes out. Yeah. You have to consider how long it takes for itch to even process your payout, which mm-hmm. is about 10 days. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Actually, the most complicated part about itch.io's payout system is that each payout system but rather each payout can only be paid out after a week so for example if you're running a a sale that lasts for a full week you have to wait one week after the last day of your sale to actually reap the full profits of said sale. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. So yeah. if your sale runs for 10 days, you're not earning anything for those 10 days. And then you have to wait for another 10 days for it to pay you. And that's 20 days. That's more than half a month. 
Yeah. Rent's um, coming. My bills are due. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's yeah. That's a that's a that's a whole goofy topic in in of itself. The money transaction area. Finances. Uh-huh. Well, Pam Sin, we are at the two hour mark for this, oh, wow. which is one <laughs> one of the longer yeah, it hasn't felt that long. I promise. I've had an absolute blast. And I know that there's more that we want to talk about. I know that there's some stuff left on the table that we could extrapolate more and more, but I think we've done a really good job here today of talking about a, this beautiful produced product of triple a quality that people should respect and purchase at the value you set it for, because that's the work you put into it. And the, the plight of digital versus print because it's a true it's a true issue and i think there are some things we can try to do to solve it and i think there are some there's some recontextualization that needs to happen for those who Mm -hmm. are in a strong status position as far as (laughs) european culture is concerned so i once again could you just give a brief outro of who you both are along with any links and resources that people can check out to find out more about you and where to get Navathan's end all these links that they're about to give us will be down in the show notes for your access listeners okay so I guess I'll I'll start so once again I'm Pam Punzalan you can find me at Dovetailer I'm mostly on Twitter and half my life is on FF14 the critically acclaimed MMORPG with a free expansion etc etc I don't remember yeah. I'm spiel anymore. But if you find me, great. Maybe I'll carry you or you can carry me because I'm currently progging Savage right now and it is yeah. my life. What other things are there? I do have a lot of games on sale. I am free for, for freelance commissions and whatnot. My current big project now that Navathim's End is done is the Dagger Isles Supplement official under Evil Hat for Blades in the Dark. You may also find my writing really soon in D&D's Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. You can also purchase, if you want to check out some Filipino-inspired horror, Hunter the Reckoning because I did all the Filipino-inspired content there. So uh, that's me. Hi, this is Sin. I am Diwata Manila on Twitter. You can find the game on diwatamnl.itch.io slash navathamsend. And I am basically Diwata Manila from for everywhere, Patreon, Kofi. Yeah, you can find me on those places. I do lay out if you want to hire me for it. Although my commissions are currently close, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm trying really hard to pace myself. <laughs> but if you want to see my portfolio, it is diwatamnl.card.co. If you want to find out more about Navathem, we do have a website. It is navathemrpg.com. So there's that. Awesome. Thank you both again for being here today. I hope everyone had a wonderful time hanging out with us because I learned a lot and I hope you did too. And we'll catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Paminson. Bye. (laughs) Perfect unison. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) And that will be a wrap. Hey there, listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Pam, Sin, and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes for getting in touch with Pam and Sin and other content with similar topics. Support Jeremy and the DYD podcast by reviewing the show or joining the community Discord server. 
Thanks again for listening. And remember that design is a marathon. So enjoy the journey and have a great day. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.